we're going to look at James chapter 4, starting at verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. This is God's word. Good evening, my name is Phil, I'm one of the ministers here, and uh, again, if you're new, it would be lovely to get the chance to, to meet you afterwards before CCM Lates uh, starts a little bit later. Let's pray as we look at God's word together. Father God, we do ask that once again you would uh, shine the light of your word onto our hearts. We pray that we would not be afraid to be exposed by your spirit, but that we rejoice to, uh, to learn the truth that we might know where we stand before you, that we might put our trust in the Lord Jesus and come back to you, and that we might live lives by your Spirit that are pleasing to you. Amen. Uh, who's taken exams this summer? Have we got any students in the house? Anybody taking exams? Yeah. The, um, it's a wonderful experience. Anybody still waiting for results? Good. Oh, oh, right at the back. I thought you were past exams, your age. Anyway, there's, um, uh, you, none of you know who I was talking about. The, there's, uh, preparing for exams is horrible. I tell you what's a lot, lot worse, though, is preparing for an exam and turning up and finding you've prepared for the wrong exam. It actually happened to a number of friends of mine at school. They were, uh, they'd spent all year being prepared by their teacher for the wrong exam. For a Latin exam, you might think, well, that's clearly the wrong exam. What's anybody wasting their time studying Latin for? But back when I was in school, the Romans had only just gone, and Latin was what everybody spoke. It's, uh, but they, they genuinely, they spent a whole year studying really hard. They went to early morning revision sessions, and all of it was entirely for the wrong exam. And James 4.13 to, to 5.6 that we've just had read is written to two groups of rich people who look like they are making a massive success of life. They're hardworking people who've really made something of themselves. They work in business. They've made enough money to contribute to the economy, to employ people, to generously provide for their families. It looks like in the exam of life, they're getting A stars all the way across the board. But according to this passage, come judgment day, God's file will reveal that their lives were worth nothing. And that all their hard work 
had been poured into things that God says just don't matter. And they'd utterly failed to study, to give themselves, to work hard at the things that do matter to Almighty God. They were successful in things that just don't matter. And they had not prepared themselves to face God's great test. And these, were, these verses are basically, they're a warning to the rich and the successful. And that means, believe it or not, they're very important to all of us here. Because by and large, this is a successful rich congregation, whatever you feel about your own personal circumstances. Globally, you're rich if you, uh, well, okay, let's say the top 1%, that's about 25,000 quid a year. Globally, you're rich. Biblically, you're rich if you can pay your bills and save something towards the future. Most of us are successful and rich, or if we're not, we're at least on the way to getting there. And according to James, there are two great dangers for us if we are part of the successful, rich crowd of London. Two dangers that can mean we pour our lives into things that actually, gosh, at the end will prove to have been worthless and fail to do what really matters. And they are that richness and success can make us proud and make us ignore injustice. Make us proud and ignore injustice. And this passage really is telling us, look, be very, very careful that you don't find in your life you excel in this world and fail at the things that matter to God. That's the real warning for us. And so as we learn about a faith that works throughout the book of James, here we see what faith looks like when it's applied into the world of our work when we go out of church and into the office Monday to to Friday for most of us or as we prepare to do that later on what is a faith that works a real faith a genuine faith and the first thing we're told uh, you've got an outline there on the back is reject the pride of presumptive planning reject the pride of presumptive planning Uh, verse 13 of chapter 4 Now listen, you who say, well, today or tomorrow, we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. It is so utterly ordinary in every day. It's done by everybody around us. We've found the words or similar words trip off our tongues a thousand times. I'm taking a job offer in New York. Look, the the market's a one-way bet there at the moment, and this business is just ideally placed to take advantage of things. I'll stay there a couple of years um, basically earn enough to get a deposit for a flat in London, and then I'm going to come back here and settle here. That's just prudence, isn't it, if an opportunity like that appears? Uh, We're going to uh, plant a church in Vauxhall. We've got about 20 people already meeting to to plan and to pray. Once we get up to 40, which should be around January, we're going to look for a venue. Um, We uh, will find somewhere to live in the area. And I've already got a guy who's at college at the moment, comes out in one or two years, who is up for doing the, the kids' work once we've got enough money to pay for a second salary. It's just being ambitious for God, isn't it? What could possibly be wrong with either of those attitudes? Verse 14, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What's your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. The issue here is not planning, it is pride. It's not planning, it's pride. And pride is a huge deal in James. Uh, He's dealt with it in chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. 
in chapter 3, verse 13, chapter 3, verse 17, chapter 4, verse 6, chapter 4, verse 10. Pride's a big deal in the book of James because pride is a big deal in our hearts. Pride is where I'm at the center of the world, where my aims, my ambitions, my energy, my focus, my thoughts are, are focused on me, really, my advancement, rather than God or others. And you see, the great danger with pride, the reason that pride is such a lethally dangerous sin, is that pride is just as happy coming to church each week as going out and getting drunk and not coming to church. Pride is very subtle. Pride is just as happy when we're honest and generous as when we lie and cheat. You see, pride is the only sin that can be growing unseen while you are fighting and killing every other sin. That's what makes it so dangerous. But pride is revealed in the way we make our plans as well as a number of other ways. But here, it's revealed in the way we make our plans. And in particular, when we fall into uh, the pattern of verses 13 to 14 and make our plans but ignore essentially two very important facts. And the two facts that get ignored are, firstly, pride blinds us to the fact we do not know what tomorrow will hold. It's the first thing. We don't know what tomorrow will hold. None of us owns a crystal ball. I mean, like a real one that works. On the 10th of September, 2001, Financiers in New York were concerned about their trading positions and busy planning how to look for profitable opportunities the next day. No one was planning for two aeroplanes to fly into the World Trade Center towers. On the morning of December the 26th, 2004, tourists in Indonesia were worried about getting a good spot on the beach, planning where to go for dinner that evening. No one was planning for a tsunami to sweep through the region. Late 2006, property investors in London uh, were planning which new up-and-coming area to buy into and do up a place and flog at a huge profit the next year. No one was planning for a credit crunch and a global recession. We have our plans and our schedules and our to-do lists for tomorrow. And the truth is, we get used to how life usually is. And if we're competent and we're sensible, we can have a pretty good idea of what will happen tomorrow so we can make sensible plans. But ultimately, none of us actually knows what will happen tomorrow. And therefore, we should exercise humility even while we plan, even while we strategize, even while we exercise wisdom. We should be humble because we just don't know. Proverbs 27.1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. So firstly, we don't actually know the future. Secondly, verse 14, we so easily forget in our planning the frailty of our human nature. You are a mist. Uh, We've been marveling at, frankly, the superhuman abilities of the athletes at the Olympics. But there was another sports story earlier this year that uh, gets forgotten really with the Olympics. Um, The England cricket team, there was a young batsman called James Taylor who'd just broken into the team, looked like he was going to cement his place. Young player, real skill with a bat. And he was starting to plan his England career, plan how to nail down his spot in the middle of the order. 
plan what it would look like to be a cricketer for the rest of his life. And then he had a problem, went into hospital, and they found he has a heart condition. He can never do serious physical exercise again. Just like that. He had the ability, the skill, the application. Looked like he had an England career ready-made for him. But the frailty of our human nature is you just don't know. You just don't know. None of us can guarantee our health or the health of the people that we love. None of us know when our time would be up. And so we should exercise humility when we make our plans. I said, of course, uh, that the planner here is, uh, he forgets two facts. His ignorance of the future and the frailty of his human body. But of course, there is a third fact that he's missed in his pride. The most fundamental fact of all. Uh, the first verse encourages us to look in to see the, uh, the truth about ourselves, that we're frail, and to, uh, to look forward and see that we don't know the truth about tomorrow. But now we're to look up. C.S. Lewis, with his usual shrewd insight, pointed out, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, when you're looking down, you cannot see something that's above you. And what is above us all? Well, it's God, our creator. And so verses 15 to 17, reject the pride of presumptive planning because God is in charge of everything. It's not that the world is random and that there is no one in charge and everything is just fickle, so give up and just, you know, who cares? It is God who is in charge. Verse 15, instead you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. The Dutch Prime Minister and theologian Abraham Kuyper once stated, there is not one square inch of the universe in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord of all, does not say, mine. It's an extraordinary statement. To put it another way, the the God of the Bible is not a a sort of pocket-sized God, and he's not a polite God. He rules everywhere, and he doesn't need your permission to rule. He rules whether you like it or not. He's neither pocket-sized nor polite. And that means that as we make our plans, as we think about the future, we are utter fools if we do not put God as the first element of all those plans. He is king over our careers and finances. He is king over our relationships and our families. He is king over our nights out and our leisure. He is king over everything. Ultimately, everything that you and I have, everything we will work for, and everything that we want to achieve in the future is in the hands of God. Everything. And that's why you find even Jesus' apostles say repeatedly as they make plans, if the Lord wills. You see it in Acts 18.21, in 1 Corinthians 4.19, if the Lord wills. I mean, when you think about it, if even Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, when he's on earth and he desperately desires something, prays to his Father, yet not my will but yours. If even God in human flesh prays that, then surely as we plan for the future, surely we must submit our plans, our dreams, our goals to God's sovereign will. Verses 16 to 17 ramp things up with a, with a rather serious warning for us. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting's evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. His point here is, it is no small thing in God's eyes to fail to acknowledge our dependence on him. 
So to live a, a good moral life, not breaking any of the big obvious commandments, not committing adultery, murdering people, ruining people's lives with big lies, to, to not do any of those, but to get on living my moral life without reference to God, not consciously submitting my plans, my future, my time to God, to live a good moral life and fail to do that is wicked. Why on earth is that? How can it be wicked to live a good moral life, but just, you know, to forget to submit your plans to God? It just seems a bit over the top. But you see, that pride actually is the essence of sin. And when you think about it, um, when Adam and Eve first rebelled against God, what is it that they wanted in the Garden of Eden? What they really wanted was to reach up and take God's place. They wanted to, to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and to become like God, as Satan promised them. In other words, they weren't content to live in dependence on God, enjoying all the good things he gave them. They wanted to not have to need God. That's what's going on. They want to not have to need God to take their own decisions, to decide for themselves what's right and wrong, to provide for themselves. They wanted to get God out of the picture. And although I might not consciously think I'm doing it, when I make my plans and ignore God, I'm behaving just like Adam and Eve in the garden. I'm saying, I want to run my own life. I want to decide what I'll do and what's right and wrong for me to do it. And I do not want to submit those things to God. I don't want it to be up to him what happens. I want it and I want to do it and that's it. So when I ignore my ignorance about tomorrow... When I ignore uh, the frailty of my human body, when I just make my plans without reference to God, I am walking down the same path in the footsteps of Adam and Eve. That's what I'm doing. I'm robbing God of the glory he deserves, and I'm living like I am God and have no need of him. Okay, so what's the right response then? The right response is not to give up all dreams and plans and ambition. The Bible is full of calls to careful planning and encouragements to dream massive dreams and to be much more ambitious than most of us ever bother to be. But we're to do so for the glory of God, independence on God. We're to make our plans and dream our dreams for the glory of God, not for the glory of me, and independence on God rather than in just reliance upon me. And we should recognize that how things turn out is ultimately in God's hands. I am not the master of my own fate and the captain of my destiny. God is. So dream, think, plan, but do so humbly. Consciously submit your plans to God in prayer. Open yourself to others to question your motives and your thoughts. The question for each of us is, does the way I think about the future, does the way I make plans reflect that truth? Rejecting the pride of presumptive planning because God is in charge of everything. So you can make a great success of your life according to these first verses. You can be popular, you can be wealthy, you can have great relationships, but you will fail the only test that really matters if you do all those things while proudly ignoring God. And then secondly, you'll find yourself in the same dilemma, the same terrible trouble, if you make a great success of your life, but you do so in a way which is unjust, in a way which ignores the plight of the poor. 
Weep, you wicked wealthy. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Now it seems most likely that the people James is addressing here are not Christians in the church, but those oppressing and um, persecuting the Christians. Uh, you've condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you, verse 6. The, the, the way it's talked about is that they are utterly rejecting God. This, this doesn't sound like it's people that he's saying, uh, Christians, you're in a bit of danger here. It seems like he's addressing those who are persecuting and, and um, crushing the Christians at this very moment. So why does he address these verses to a bunch of people who are not even in church? It just seems a bit odd and pointless. I think there are two reasons. Firstly, God's the God of all people. God's the God of all people. So even those who don't come to church should live by his standards. So God declares in the Bible again and again how all people should live, not just how his people should live. Secondly, his standards are the same for all people. And so as Christians, we should listen into this this condemnation and learn how we should live as we learn what God says should not happen. So it's relevant to us too. Uh, The second issue really as we get into it is why does it say you rich rather than you unjust rich? Is it saying all rich people are wicked? The reason I think it's shorthand. um, And the reason is that often in the history of God's people, if you read through the Old Testament, it's the ruling elites who depart from God. And it's the faithful who end up poor and marginalized and oppressed because they won't follow in the wickedness of the ruling elites. And so while there are many examples of good rich people in the Bible like Job and Joseph and Abraham, rich is often just shorthand in the Bible for wicked rich or rich in this world but poor towards God. And poor uh, is not, doesn't mean every poor person is good but it becomes a sort of shorthand for godly poor. So when you read through the Bible you realise that there is this sort of shorthand that develops that quite often when it says rich it, it means wicked rich and quite often when it says poor it's talking about the godly poor. Okay, let's get into the text itself. Weep and wail, you rich people. Why on earth would you weep and wail if you're rich? Why would lottery winners be tearing their clothes in grief? Because, verse 1, the misery that is coming on you. And misery is not coming on them, as we'll see, because God hates the rich, as if God is communist. It's coming on them because they, the rich are abusing the poor and exploiting their workers. So weep, you wicked wealthy, because God hates injustice. Verse 2 to 3, your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Now it's obvious, he's not speaking literally, because gold doesn't rust. He knows that. His point is spiritual rather than literal. Saying, look, in the world's eyes, you are rich, you are privileged, you are powerful, you are secure. Everything you have is splendid. But in God's eyes, it's a rotten, fetid mess. All of it. Uh, I'm sure you've seen the film Pirates of the Caribbean. There's about 30 of them now, I think. I mean, talk about flogging a dead horse or um, squeezing the golden goose. But the the original one, uh, way back whenever it came out, shortly after the Second World War, was a really good film, actually. But the central thing in it, just in case you've forgotten, is you've got these pirates on the Black Pearl ship, and they look normal. Well, they look like pirates, but they um, Keith Richards, most of them. But they, but they look basically normal. They look like humans. But in moonlight, the truth is revealed um, that the 
their wealth, the gold coins they stole and hoarded, have rotted them. And they're basically, they're, they're skeletons with bits of rotting flesh hanging off them. But it only gets revealed in the moonlight. Sorry if that ruins the movie for those of you who haven't seen it. But there we go. Uh, and this is what James is saying. Look, you look normal. You look wealthy. You, when you open your treasury, it's full of magnificent gold and beautiful robes and works of art. And you have lovely houses. But when the light of God's truth is shone on it, it reveals corrosion and death and decay and nothing of any worth. Well, okay, but why does God view it that way? That's the question, why? Because you have hoarded, verse 3, wealth in the last days. So it's not a communist rant against the wealthy. It's a sterning warning about misusing wealth. You see, when we have wealth, we are tempted to, to hoard it. That is to use it for me. To spend it uh, ensuring I am secure and I can face the future without fear and I have lots of fun stuff to enjoy right now. That's how we're tempted to use it, but we live in the last days. In other words, it is not long till we see King Jesus. For you and I in this room, we will see him within the next, well, 70 years, unless people's lives get really long. Within the next 70 years, almost all of us will see Jesus. Either he'll return or we'll die and we'll see him. We are in the last days. So this is no time to to hoard money as if we're going to live on earth forever. Now is the time to spend money in the way which which honors Jesus, uh, spending it to, to relieve poverty and to spread the good news about Jesus around the world. Things God is pleased by and things that God will reward us for eternally. But the rich in James' time are not doing that. And so God is angry with them. It gets even worse in the last verses. Verse 4, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. The picture is the, the landowners luxuriating in the wine-soaked splendor of their dinner party. Absolutely deaf to the cries of the ragged poor outside. Unable to to feed their family because, well, the rich haven't paid them their daily wages. And so the laborers on whose labor the rich are wealthy are starving to death. They can't hear the cries because they're too busy having a great time at the dinner party. But God can hear. And in the distance there is the rumbling of thunder as God's anger grows and grows. And so the image develops in verse 5. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Look, if you, um, if you drive up to, to Norfolk, um, it's a long way to drive just to follow this illustration, but um, it's a nice drive. But if you drive up to Norfolk in the autumn, you see fields just covered in geese and turkeys with their great nets over them. And the, the ground is literally an inch deep in just turkey feed. And, they go, gobble, 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 and they're, just, they're just bent over, gobbling up the food as happy as can be. None of them are flying at the nets. None of them are trying to get out of the edges of the field. They're just happily gobble, 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 eating away. I mean, why would you escape from, why would you try and run away from an all-you-can-eat buffet? They're thinking, you know, life is just brilliant. But what they don't know is that while they think life is just one long feast for them, within a month or two, they're all going to end up looking like that. 
And James says, you rich are fattening yourselves like a turkey for slaughter. Not for Christmas Day, but for Judgment Day. Not to be eaten to satisfy the appetite of people who want to feast, but to be destroyed to satisfy the justice of the God who loves the poor. Their great wealth and the injustice that helped to create it will serve as their condemnation on Judgment Day. Their fat bellies will witness against them. Okay, in James's day, this was a pressing issue that led uh, to, frankly, almost civil war uh, in AD 66 to 70, with the poor rising up against the rich. But uh, I doubt very many of us here are uh, rich landowners squeezing the poor laborers in our fields. Um, most of us, that's just not really a pressing issue. But there is a mighty lesson in this passage for you and for me. God is far more concerned with whether we treat people fairly and justly than whether we get as rich as we could do by squeezing them a little bit more. God is just and he loves justice. And therefore, whether we share his love for justice matters to him far, far more than whether we got a little bit richer by cutting a little more for ourselves. You see, the great king of the universe is not so busy spinning galaxies and uh, rearranging who's king of this and who's president over there to be deaf to the cries of the poor today, the trafficked women just around the corner here, uh, the workers in being paid wages they cannot live on, who were promised a new life over in Europe. God is not so busy running the whole universe that he doesn't notice one man fail to pay another man what he promised. Or one woman give what is a just amount in return for the work that was done. And to poor Christians, this passage is a ray of light and hope. See, there is no promise that injustice in this life will be dealt with. There is no promise that at some point in your 80-odd years on earth... All the bad things that have been done to you will somehow be righted. We don't live in a Hollywood universe in that sense. But there is the promise of perfect justice one day brought about by God. Much greater justice that will endure for eternity. And because of that, there is no need if you are suffering great injustice to be consumed by bitterness and the thirst for violent revenge. No matter how local and personal that injustice is or global and corporate, whatever it is, there's no need to be sucked into a vortex of bitterness and violence because you know that there is a God who hears and one day will bring justice. To the rich, which I guess is most of us, this passage is a warning and a reminder that once again you can excel in this world all the while being in great trouble with God. You can work your way up to the top in this world and have failed to prepare to meet your maker. No good being wealthy and successful if it involves, well, practices that whether they're legal or not are unjust. There's no point in uh, him being Philip Green if it involves getting ahead at the expense of those beneath you.
Now, there are complexities here. I'm not here to make uh, political statements. And once we get into the details of, okay, well, uh, what does it mean for us to, to be concerned about justice in this world? There are complexities. And in a room this big, with people who are educated and opinionated, we'll have a huge variety of different views. But that is not an excuse for us doing nothing. And so individually, we each have an obligation to make sure we are not involved in injustice. We'll come to different conclusions about what the right thing to do is, but we will think about the negatives, whether there are companies we wouldn't work for or do business with or buy the products of, whether there are places we wouldn't go on holiday, whatever it is, we'll all come to different conclusions, but we will think about, are the things that I shouldn't do because I don't want to be involved in injustice? But it's not just negatives. Positively, there are lots of things we can do. And Christians historically, Bible-believing Christians, have been at the forefront of displaying God's passionate concern for the poor and the oppressed. People like Wilberforce and Shaftesbury famously. People in this congregation have been involved in helping with the homeless, in in helping trafficked women in this area through the Tamar ministry at the moment. I was uh, talking to somebody from the, a couple from the morning congregation who spent the summer in Egypt um, helping with a a poor community of Christians who'd been dreadfully oppressed to to help them um, with a plan that will give them um, work and enable them to, to, to provide for their families. And it's really exciting to hear what they could do. Not all of us speak Egyptian and have got the entrepreneurial skills to do what they're doing, but it's great to hear people are doing what they can do, what they can do. Now, my aim is not to heap a whole bunch of guilt upon us for yet more stuff we ought to be doing and are failing to do. Great. That's just really encouraging. And nor am I suggesting that we as a church, uh, let's ditch um, trying to tell people about Jesus and teach the Bible. Let's just uh, focus all our efforts on, um, on alleviating social justice. As disciples of Jesus, we are called primarily, our, our calling, according to Jesus' last words on earth, is to go and make disciples. That's what we're all to be about. But as God's children, we should be people whose hearts match God. Our faith should work. We should share his concern, his priorities. We should be angry at injustice. Even if we say, I have no time, I have no money, let me ask, do they ever form part of my prayers? I was... I was rather disappointed thinking about this sermon this week as I realized um, a couple of times in the last year or so I've, had, um, I've been treated as I see it unfairly by big corporate people whose products don't work. And as an ex-lawyer, there is a little bit of me that rather enjoys writing a long, punchy letter um, to customer complaints departments. They must hate people like me. But I'm quite happy to spend quite a bit of time doing that when it's me who's suffered inconvenience. And it did just make me wonder, uh, do I ever have the same appetite to spend my spare time to help people suffering much greater injustices rather than just inconveniences? As God's children, we'll work it out differently. We've got different abilities, different opportunities, different pressures. But injustice should anger me. I should care for the oppressed and And do what I can to show God's love, justice, and goodness. Okay, let's step back. Look at the, as we, uh, as just as we close, the whole passage. This passage is basically a warning. I don't apologize for that. It warns us: you can be a very successful bunch of city-dwelling Londoners, 
and spend all your time getting ahead in this world and fail to prepare for the things that matter to God. Let's remember, though, as we close, we're not saved by being humble and buying fair trade chocolate. We're saved by, verse 6, trusting in the innocent one who was murdered for us, by trusting in the Lord Jesus' death in our place. But this passage reminds us that how we live now, whether we're humble in the way we plan for the future, whether we have a concern to avoid the injustice in our society, those things demonstrate the reality of that trust in Jesus. The reality of our Christianity is not just seen in the things we sing on a Sunday, but in the lives we lead Monday to Saturday. Let's pray. Our Father God, we are sorry for how, when life is good for us, when we are relatively wealthy and when we have comfort, we can so easily become proud and forget that we are in your hands. And we can so easily uh, be deaf to the injustice around us. Father, we pray that you would change our hearts. We pray that the reality of our trust in the Lord Jesus would be seen in our humility that recognizes all things are in your hands. And are in our passion for... uh, for justice that matches your merciful dealings with the poor and the oppressed. Father, when we, were, when we were poor and helpless and slaves, not slaves uh, innocently, but because of our own wicked sin, Father, you had mercy on us. And so we pray that we too would be marked by mercy for others. Amen.